Please be seated. Well, it's my privilege this morning to get to share with you from the book of 1 Peter. And I almost want to begin this morning with a little bit of an apology. I've been thinking a little bit about um, our our sermons at at GPC. And um, there's a lot that you instinctively know about preaching. One of the things you may not be aware of is... um, how difficult it is. <laughs> so you spend your week and you're reading and you're listening and you're thinking and you're doing all this. And then about um, Friday and Saturday, it's decision-making time. Pastor Paul does not like making decisions of any kind in this world. They're painstaking for him. But it, there comes a time where you have to make decisions. What are you going to say and what are you not going to say? And so you're always making these decisions. And And you know, a sermon, let me say this, a sermon is not a Bible study. It's not a lecture. But it's taking the Word of God and what it says and saying what it says and then seeking to apply it into the lives of everybody, right? Well, that's not easy. Um, I'll tell you what else is not easy. I just did a communicants class speaking to ages 6 to 15. Well, who do you speak to? The 16-year-old? 15-year-old. Well, how much harder is it in here? Our ages are all over the place, right? So so Pastor Paul's making decisions all the time, and a lot of times they're bad decisions. Um, Hopefully this morning there were some good, careful decisions. So our text this morning is a short text. It's shorter than usual. But it may be short, but it is long and deep in its meaning. Too much could be said... And yet so much will not be said that should be said. So when you talk about the holiness of God, do you understand how deep and rich and how much history there is for God's people on that subject? What hope is there for us this morning but that God would preach the sermon? Amen? So with that in mind, give your attention uh, to Peter's few words that are so rich in meaning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would bless His Word. Lord, would You take Your Word and would You now use it in the life of Your people, those who look to You in faith. And Lord, for any who do not look to You in faith, would You use Your Word now to open eyes and ears and hearts to help us understand our lack of holiness and your sheer, utter holiness. And then, Lord, for all of us, would you work in us an obedience that comes by faith, that we may honor you and glorify you by dying to sin and living for righteousness, as we should. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was in high school... um, I was a very different person, as were you when you were in high school, thinking of the adults. 
high schoolers. You are who you are in high school right now. But uh, I, uh, I was made to listen to some seminars on tape. So you remember what this is like, this big plastic uh, book-like thing filled with cassette tapes. Um, parents, explain to your children over lunch what cassette tapes are, right? <laughs> we would listen to those. I would listen to those in the car. Uh, my mother made me do it. And if I remember correctly, I, I think that the series I was listening to was called Where, Where There's a Will, There's an A. If, if anybody else listened to that series in 1988, you, you let me know. Um, but Pastor Paul's grades were not so good, and it was time to make sure we could get into college. So Mama did her part to make sure that I listened to a book on tape, a uh, series of lectures. All that to say... I remembered that event this week in thinking about the sermon, and in particular, an illustration that the speaker on the cassettes used. And this was 35 years ago. I remember an illustration from 35 years ago. I don't know if you'll remember this illustration, but but here's what it was. It was on the importance of being practical and not impractical. It was on the importance of listening to wisdom and speaking wisdom that was practical, that could be used rather than just empty, trite platitudes that you really can't do anything with. And here was what the example was. Parents will often tell their children when they leave home, be safe, right? Be safe or, depending on the parent, don't do anything stupid, right? That's wisdom. Be safe. Don't do anything stupid. Well, how practical is that? Wouldn't it be more practical if, you, if every time your child, your son or your daughter went to drive a car somewhere, if you gave them an example of how they could go and be careful, how they could be safe? And the example used in 1988 was this. Maybe when your child is leaving, instead of just generically saying, be safe, what if you gave them some truth like this? Okay, as you go, when you come to a stoplight at an intersection, don't turn your wheels in advance while traffic is coming in the other direction. Keep your wheels straight ahead until you actually turn, because if you turn your wheels before and you wait on traffic, If somebody were to hit you in the rear, they would what? Bump you into oncoming traffic. So be safe by keeping your wheels straight ahead. And then once you go, turn your wheels. 35 years later, I remember that illustration and and I practice that. I don't know that I've actually told my children. Now one of them has heard it. But that's (laughs) that's practical, usable wisdom, right? That's how, that's how to be safe. That's not just be safe out there, y'all. It's one way in which you could exercise and practice safety. Now, I tell my children different things living in, in rural Abbeville County. I say things that you may disagree with. My practical wisdom is, okay, late at night, safest place to drive on a lonely country road is a little close to the center maybe down the middle of the road, have your high beams on, scan right to left, looking for eyeballs, 
right? Because a, a critter, a creature could dart out from the right or from the left. So the safest place to be is in the middle of the road. That's where we might disagree. And, and then, and then, and if an animal should run out in front of you, don't swerve and hit the tree. Hit the animal. God will make another one. <laughs> right? Now, let me, let me be more clear. Break, do break, right? But, but don't, don't make one mistake. Don't, don't make the situation worse by swerving and hitting a tree and putting your own life and limb or those passengers with you at risk so that a skunk can wobble safely away. Right? You weigh. You weigh the, the situation. So, so that's, that's my modern day example. Um, that's practical. I, I trust that's, that's usable. Well, this morning, Peter it talks about holiness. And it's going to sound like it's impractical. It's going to sound this morning like it's just, you know, be safe, generically. Be safe out there. But he's going to put it like this. Be holy. But he's not going to answer this morning what he means by that. He's going to do that in chapter 2 and elsewhere in the book. So I need you to hear this sermon not as just being general, but that the specifics are coming. But he begins with the character and nature of God, which is always the starting point of, of everything. Right? That's how the communicants class started this morning, is on the nature of God, His holiness, and as, as being our Creator. So all good thinking starts with the Creator and what He has told us about Himself. The practical and useful understanding and application of what Peter says is going to come in chapter 2 and beyond. But Peter's theme, his emphasis, very clearly, is holiness. And that's, you know, not just Peter's emphasis. That's the emphasis and theme of the Old Testament and of the New Testament. You might could say that the Bible is preoccupied with the story of holiness, God's holiness. It is iterated, it is reiterated over and over again. It's, it's communicated in words, it's communicated with images, it's communicated with ceremonies and with procedures. It's even communicated in song and in poetry. But the Bible is consumed with telling the story of God's holy nature, who He is. Not only that God is holy, but the Bible is committed to telling the story of how His people are called to be holy and how His people are not Holy. He is holy, holy, holy. We are not, not, not. It has always been that way since teeth sunk into the forbidden fruit. Ever since then, we have not been holy. And the rest of the Bible is the telling of what God would do about that holiness problem, that righteousness problem that every single one of us has. It's not a problem for some of us. The Bible says it's a problem for all of us. We have a holiness problem. We have a righteousness problem. And the person of Jesus, God's holy 
Son. And the work of the Holy Spirit given to us by the Holy Father. That's the story of the Bible. That's what Peter is leading with, beginning with in chapter 1. As you've got to acknowledge the holiness of who God is and how He has always revealed Himself to be. Now, we live in confusing times. And we are a confused people. You may have seen, like I did recently, uh, the telling of the story of a children's Bible book that told of Jesus' baptism. Did anybody see this recently? So there's a book called The Baptism of Jesus. Now this is your your children's book with, with illustration and picture and all of that. But it tells the story that we're given in the Gospels of Jesus' baptism. And in a caption, it has Jesus saying these words as he goes to be baptized by John the Baptist. It says that Jesus is thinking and saying to himself, I have come to the river to wash away my sins. Now that is what we would call heresy. The Bible communicates that Jesus, part of the divinity, the triune God, is what? Holy, holy, holy. Jesus was baptized to fulfill all requirements of the law. That he would prove himself holy, holy, holy in every way. And so the question is, well, wait a minute. Is Jesus holy or not? Because this book would confuse children to think that Jesus was baptized because he was a sinner. That's not what we believe. That is not what we believe in the Presbyterian Church in America or at Greenwood Presbyterian Church. We believe that Jesus is holy. He's a part of the triune God. He is the Holy Son of God. So is Jesus holy or not? Peter's talking about the holiness of God. He says it is priority one to understand, but in our world, in our culture, even within the Christian church, there's wrongful teaching, misleading teaching about that. So what do you believe? Do you believe that He's holy or do you not? So three things about holiness this morning. Hopefully these are helpful. I hope all of these could lead to some helpful conversation particularly with children around lunch. The first is this, holiness defined. How do we define holiness? Well, here's one way it could be defined. Holiness is God's unique, utter, complete, total moral perfection and righteousness. There ain't no one like the Lord. He is utterly holy. He alone is holy. The Trinity alone is holy. This is told to us in Scripture. We've heard Scriptures this morning. The whole service has been emphasizing this theme. We began with a reflection from Psalm 29. It says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His Holiness. That's such a difficult concept to get your arms around. As you try to explain it to children today, you'll find how how do you really communicate this. The, The psalmist says the splendor of His holiness. We're gathered in the splendor of God's holiness. Well, we're on carpet and in pews and they may or may not be comfortable. And Is this splendor? This doesn't... I mean, it's a great sanctuary, but I wouldn't call this splendorous. But the presence of God is splendorous. 
If you know yourself to be a sinner worthy of just judgment, and you hear these pronouncements of His mercy and His grace that pardons sin, boy, that's splendorous. It's amazing grace. Right? So understanding holiness, it's so difficult. God alone can enable us to understand holiness. Then we were called to worship from Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim, the angels. Let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy, it says. There's just no other way to say it, to give it the weight and the glory that God's name and all of His attributes deserves. He's holy. He's set apart. He's different than everything you and I know. There ain't no one like the Lord. Literally. He is holy. So how do you define it? Well, that's my best shot. He is unique, utter, complete, totally, morally perfect and righteous. Now, to make things a little bit more difficult for us to understand is that holiness and righteousness is talked about for us in two different categories, in two different ways. And we're familiar, perhaps, with the language, the Bible's language of, of holiness and righteousness by justification and holiness and righteousness as sanctification. And we can get very confused in 1 Peter if you, if you confuse your categories. By the way, the Christian life is very confusing if, if you confuse justification and sanctification. Right? It, it actually is very confusing. But if God would give you eyes to understand the difference between justification and sanctification, then suddenly it's like everything falls into place. And we see ourselves as being forgiven and yet called to live life a certain way in thankful obedience to God. And that's the rest of the sermon. One way to think about this um, would be this. Justification, that holiness, that righteousness required for our justification, that is forensic holiness. It's forensic. Any fans of forensic files... Here this morning, do you know that show? Oh, it's a great show. It's an old show. But um, I can get so pulled into those stories. But Forensic Files is the real life telling, well, the telling of real life stories of how people are either proved guilty or innocent of crimes based upon forensic science. That is proof. Proof oftentimes through DNA, blood. I saw one this week that was based on a flannel shirt and material from a flannel shirt where they could prove that a person had been at a crime scene. It's forensically proved beyond a shadow of a doubt. It is legally proved. It is judicially proved. It is a fixed fact. It is irrefutable. That's our justification and the righteousness that God imputes 
and counts for us. It's forensic holiness. It's judicial. It's declared. It's irrefutable. And it's proved. Romans, or excuse me, yeah, Romans chapter 4, verse 3 speaks of this. It says that this righteousness, this justifying righteousness, is by faith and not by our works. The passage says, What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's the forensic righteousness that justifies us. It's belief, it's faith in God, His promises and His works. Philippians chapter 3 verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ... The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So, cement in your heads. There are, there are two kinds of righteousness, two kinds of holiness that Peter is talking about, that the Bible talks about. And the first is justification. We are declared righteous. It is forensic. It proves us. It validates us. It is irrefutable evidence. And then there's the second kind of holiness. And this is the one that Peter is speaking of. It is practical holiness. It is holiness exercised. It is holiness lived out. It is sanctification is the biblical word. The practice of obedience. And whereas justification is fixed and certain, sanctification can wax and can wane. And this is where we can get confused if we don't understand the difference on sanctification and justification. We can have seasons in the Christian life that are characterized by obedience and what we might call success and discipline and and distancing ourselves from sin and its appetites. And then we can backslide And live through seasons where we're characterized by failure and shortcoming. And so sanctification may look somewhat like this throughout the various seasons of life. And there are all kinds of things that can can affect whether we're living well or, or living poorly. But justification is different in that it is fixed and unchanging. And Peter, as well as Paul and everybody else in the Bible, would say, get your categories right. Because if you confuse your categories, you will live with uncertainty of God's love. And you will think that you prove yourself and justify yourself by your sanctification. And so there are two different categories. But be clear this morning and in the weeks to come, Peter is addressing category two, sanctification, practical holiness, how we are to live. And so he uses that language of be holy. Be holy because the Lord your God is holy. Now later in chapter 2 verse 1, he's going to give us some of those specifics. And I'm not going to preach that sermon now. We'll get to it when we do. But there he says, Therefore, in light of your justification, has been his argument, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. So there he gets into the specifics of, okay, now, therefore, don't turn your wheels where you could get bumped into oncoming traffic. So he does get specific. 
later in chapter 2 and beyond. But, but for now, he's harping on holiness as a broad subject and reminding these people that just as the Lord your God is holy, so you are to be holy in all that you do, which is the call of sanctification. And so simply put, this is Peter's call for the church to be sanctified, to be holy, to live differently than everybody else out there in the world who doesn't look to the Lord as their God and as their Redeemer. We're supposed to be different. Not weird, but different, right? Now the world might think we're weird. God says it's holy, and we seek to honor Him and live for Him in, in all the ways that His Word tells us to. We're called to be holy. It's the call of sanctification. J.C. Ryle, in trying to get his arms around this subject, communicates it this way about practical holiness. He says, what is true practical holiness? My account is but a poor and imperfect outline at best. It is being of one mind with God as He is revealed in Scripture. It is agreeing with His judgments, hating what He hates, loving what He loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standards of His Word. It is endeavoring to shun every sin and to keep every commandment out of a hearty desire to do His will. It is striving to be like the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Heavenly Father. It is bearing with and forgiving others. It is denying oneself by mortifying bodily desire and curbing sinful passions and carnal inclinations. It is setting affections on things above and not holding on to the things of the world. Boy, that may be an inadequate definition, but that's a pretty good definition. He kind of captures the big picture very well. That's practical holiness. And that's how God would have His people think and seek to live. Because they are justified. And He gives them the power to put sin to death and to desire to live for His glory. Therefore, because of their justification, He says there is power for their sanctification. And now holiness described. If that's holiness defined, well, how about a description of holiness? So this week in exploring that subject, I actually found myself reading a little bit um, with a little bit of interest from Greek philosophers. Boy, 18-year-old Paul Patrick couldn't believe that he just said that. Um, but it was a great little article about holiness and practical holiness. And I'll just share the nugget with you. The names of Plato, Aristotle, and Demosthenes. They wrote about subjects like these. The good, what is good in this world. The true, what is true in this world. And the beautiful, what is beautiful in this world. Now you may have heard that language in the church before. That we believe that God himself is the good, the true, and the beautiful. And that anything that is good, true, and beautiful must come from Him and remain near Him. 
And that's exactly right. That's an that's a excellent and helpful summary. Weren't Plato and Aristotle and Demosthenes so brilliant to come up with that? Well, guess what? They get the credit for it. Uh, but the article that I read was wonderful in that it showed this is actually how God reveals Himself and the issues of sinful man very early in the Bible. Listen to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, what is good, what is beautiful, and what is true, she took some and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And what we have here is our first parents inwardly knowing that they should long for what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful, but immediately looking to the wrong things, listening to the wrong people, and ruining everything for all of us. And if they hadn't ruined it, you and I would have, right? The good, the true, and the beautiful has always been what God has offered His people, but they've always looked elsewhere for it. And you can think of your own life and apply this to yourself. But what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful, it always comes from God, and therefore you need to stay near Him, right? It's when we drift, we're like Adam and Eve, we drift and look for what is good, true, and beautiful elsewhere, and you will never find it elsewhere. It's a fool's errand to look for the good, the true, and the beautiful anywhere except from the one who himself is good and true and beautiful. And so holiness can rightly be described as that which is truly good, that which is absolutely good, that which is absolutely beautiful, and that which is absolutely truthful. Now that adverb, that description of, of absolute, let's remember what that means. I actually heard that word in the news this week. Some of you heard absolutely used in the news as it pertained to a text message that was uh, sent in, in a, a court case this week. But the language of absolute and absolutely literally means not qualified in any way. A hundred percent. And in that way, that's a right understanding of this. God is 100% good. He is 100% beautiful. He is 100% truthful. And so if we're going to be holy, if we're going to respond to the call to holiness, our lives, the living of our lives, needs to be committed and determined and making decisions to pursue what is good, what is true, what is beautiful. That's a description of holiness, a description of what God would have His people do. Now, briefly about this. So, so if the word is, is absolutely good, true, and beautiful, then we could think about the antonyms, the opposites of each of those words, and that is what we are not to pursue. And sure enough, the Bible speaks in that way. Proverbs chapter 6, verse... Uh, 16 to 19. Listen to this. Listen how the Bible speaks in the negative here to help us understand the pursuit of holiness. It says, There are six things the Lord hates. Seven 
that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. There's your picture of the opposite of holiness. There's your verbal picture of what it is to not be true, to be a liar, to not be good, and to not be beautiful. And so the Bible speaks in the positive and it illustrates in the negative. We're called to pursue the good, the true, and the beautiful in everything that we do. It's like James chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. That word good, the good life, you know literally what it is? It's a beautiful life. It's a beautiful life. It's a life well lived. And James tells these believers, these Christians, your life should be beautiful in a very ugly world. Your life should be different in that way. Not weird. It's different. It's set apart. It's to be a life beautifully lived. And the world should see it and know that it is of God. It is not of this world. That's what holiness and the appeal of holiness should do in the living of your life and mine. But the problem is, remember, God's holy, 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 and we are not, not, not. We're not holy at work. We're not holy at the gym. We're not holy at school. We're not holy at home. We tend to send everything, mainly mixed messages, about God's holiness. You do, and I do. C.S. Lewis said this, How little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, holiness, it is irresistible. If even 10% of the world's population had it, holiness, would not the whole world be converted and happy before a year's end? Well, technically, I, I could disagree with some of what he's saying there conceptually, but his point is holiness is beautiful. I mean, the world can explain it away, but, but a husband who loves his wife the way that God would call him to, laying down his life for the good of his wife, that's beautiful. A wife who loves her husband and respects him and honors him, there's something holy about that. It's beautiful and our world doesn't understand it. Children who obey their parents in reference to the Lord and the command on them, that's beautiful. It's holy. And that's what Peter is saying. We're to be different in that way. And C.S. Lewis is saying, you know, the world couldn't disagree with it. If you see something truly good, truly beautiful, truly truthful, you can't deny the rightness of it, the righteousness of it. And then Peter says that like obedient children, Christians are supposed to obey. Now, I thought about that this week, too, um, and here are my thoughts. Is Peter insulting them? Because we'll refer to adults as children and use it pejoratively. We'll use it as an insult. Stop acting like a child, right? 
Is Peter insulting them? Absolutely not. I mean, you could use the language of being a child as being a pejorative, as being negative. Peter's using it as a privilege. So pejorative or privilege, what is your view as the Bible speaks of us as children? Clearly it's here, according to Peter, it is a privilege. It is a privilege to be the son of God. And that is what the Bible says that we are if our faith is is in Jesus. So this passage can be confusing to us. And then also because of the language of obedience. Now I need us to think about this for a moment. Because some of you, given your own understanding or background, you could hear that almost like, oh no, Peter doesn't understand the gospel. He's talking about obedience. But you do understand that obedience is part of the gospel. It's the sanctification part of the gospel. We're not justified by our obedience, but a part of the good news of the gospel is that He not only calls us to be holy, but He enables us to obey His calling, to die to our sin. Right? It's justification and sanctification. Together, those are all part of the same story of God's redemption of his people. So actually Peter really does understand the gospel, yet he talks about obedience to God and holiness in living out obedience like children. You know the Bible talks of us as being both sons and slaves. And it uses that language and that illustration in different ways. But it says we're no longer to be slaves to sin but slaves to righteousness, right? So it can be confusing reading 1 Peter. Wait a minute, I thought being a child was an insult. No, it's a privilege. What do you mean obey like children? We're called to obey, and the gospel alone has the power to enable us to obey. Because we've been justified by faith, He now gives His Spirit And not just the word and call to obey, but actual power to see sin put to death in us. That's why Peter can use such strong language. That's why the Bible can use such strong language about our third point, which is holiness demanded. Holiness demanded. We heard from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And that holiness is true both of justification and sanctification. That those who are truly justified will be sanctified. And we have all kinds of problems that prevent us from understanding this as well. I'm at the end of my sermon. There's no time to going, going into this. This is one of those decisions being made on the spot. But antinomianism. Antinomianism within the church Antinomianism, even within the Presbyterian Church in America, there are elements of it. Antinomian means against the law. And the antinomian mindset is that the law, God's law, is just bad. It just condemns. And the law does condemn those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. But to those who are justified, those who are given the Spirit of God, Now the law becomes the means by which this is how God would have me live for His glory. To have no other gods before Him. Right? To not be a murderer, 
even in my thoughts towards other people. To not be one who steals the things of this earth as if they're treasures, but to see that my treasure is in heaven. And on and on and on through the Ten Commandments. And so any antinomian spirit that you and I can naturally, carnally have, we have to see that, wait a minute, what Peter is saying here would rule that out. We are given a power to obey, not so that we might be justified, but because we've been justified. And God desires His people to live a holy life. Let's not truncate the gospel. Let's not cut it short at just justification. Sanctification is the other side of the same coin of salvation. That's why Paul could say in Philippians chapter 2 these words. Listen to this as we close. Paul says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act to think and to do in order to fulfill His good purposes. You see, God is at work in us to change our wills and to enable us to live a holy life, to live a different life. So it's not okay if you're a Christian who claims to be justified to continue living with that temper problem, to continue to live with that abuse problem of food or drink of entertainment, of relationships, of whatever. It's not okay to remain there. And God has not left you powerless to change. Now, is change in this life incredibly difficult? Absolutely, 100%. But the Christian is not left to their own strength and to their own will. It is God who works in us to change our wills, to give us a new nature that can live for His glory, that can seek to be holy, even as the Lord our God is holy. And I close with this. I have never really looked very much like my dad, like my father. You can look at baby pictures of my dad and baby pictures of me, and you would be like, nope, they don't look alike. Toddler pictures, same thing. We physically just don't look alike. But somewhere around age, I don't know, 38, 40, things started to change a little bit. If I looked anything like him, it was simply because I was losing hair. Um, but, but some different changes, not so much appearance, but behavior changes started to happen in me. I would bend over to tie my shoe or pick something off of the ground, and I would grunt like my father. I started to sound like my father. I would see a picture of myself and be like, huh, now that smile kind of looks like dad, or the way that you stand kind of looks like dad. And then somewhere in my 40s, it's as if my sense of humor changed a little bit. Dad jokes. Right? I started to, my sense of humor was more like my dad. My sarcasm grew immensely. I started to become like the dad who birthed, well, he didn't birth me, my mom birthed me to be clear. My dad, my biological, I started to become more and more like 
my father, the way I would sit in a chair, um, the way I would cross my legs like a woman when I sit. Some of you have seen that and you laugh about it. Well, that's how my dad sat. I learned to sit and cross my legs. It's comfortable. It just it feels right. I'm becoming more and more like my dad. Like it or not. And the same thing is to be true spiritually. We're to become more and more like our heavenly father. His character. His likeness. Being rich in mercy. Quick to forgive. Not stirring up of argument. God says His people are to be holy. They're to be like Him. More and more increasingly like Him. That's the standard that He's given His people. It's what Peter is speaking of. It's what I'm trying to speak of this morning. No more letting ourselves off the hook. We're called to be justified and sanctified. And He gives us power to change. He he will work that in us. He'll do it through time. He especially does it through His Word. He says He does it through the sacraments. We try to take those, those things very seriously as we should. We have things like the men's fellowship to try to stir up some sanctification or maybe to bring some justification if it lacks. Same thing with our youth. We want to stir up some sanctification, some growth. We want to become more like our Heavenly Father. And we will do that more together, gathering as His people, usually than we will alone, withdrawn and secluded from God's people. There's wisdom in in getting together. There's wisdom in hearing God's Word. It's how He combs the tangles out of the hair of our life. He does it through His Word. He does it through worship. And we're becoming... We're intended to become more and more like our Heavenly Father. So oftentimes our sanctification is directly linked to our showing up and being there. That we might be sanctified by God's Word and by God's people as His Spirit uses those things. And that reminds me, I didn't make an announcement earlier. The youth tonight as they meet, We'll be having French toast and sausage for your sanctification and for mine. Show up to grow up, right? Just showing up. Showing up to the men's prayer group, Bible study, men's fellowship, women's Bible study, whatever it is. God calls us to be holy. He wants to conform us more and more to the image of our Heavenly Father. Let's pray that that would be true. Lord, we admit to you that we are not holy. We are so self-centered. We're so prideful. Everything revolves around us, our feelings, our emotions. Yet we're reminded this morning of what you have done for our justification, our righteousness problem. And Lord, I pray that we're understanding of what you have committed yourself to do in us for our sanctification, for our growth in practical living of holiness. So, Lord, put sin to death in us and conform us more and more, working in us and through us for the glory of your holy name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.